You're listening to Rock's Heart Radio. Today, Roxana Moran hears the highlights of AHA 2022 from Benu Bigdeli and Bob Axian. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rock's Heart Radio, our monthly podcast. Uh, every month is a tremendous honor to come to you, and I really um, love to have incredible guests. And this week and this month is no different than the months before. We have two wonderful guests. Uh, we'll start with Dr. Babak Ziyayan. Um, he's an assistant professor of medicine at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA in the Division of Cardiology. He graduated from University of Cal- California, Irvine School of Medicine, completed his internal medicine training at Yale New Haven Hospital, and then his UCLA Star Fellowship in the Cardiovascular Diseases and Doctoral Degree in Health Policy and Management at UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health in 2016. Um, his research has been amazing. He focuses on disparities and high uh, utilization of hospital services for heart failure patients. He is the recipient of the ACC Presidential Career uh, Development Award in 2017, as well as a three-year AHA Scientific Development Grant, which is very rare and difficult to get. I could tell you I tried for that and never never succeeded. His primary research interests are in cardiovascular outcomes research, disparities in cardiovascular care, cost effectiveness, and the quality of heart failure management. Welcome, uh, Dr. Ziyayan. Uh, I know I'm going to go with your first name, Bobak, and oh, yeah, I hope Bobak. it's going to be okay. Yeah. Thank you for the kind introduction, Dr. Mehran. Such a pleasure to be on your show. Oh, it's great to to be with you. And then um, a really close friend and colleague, Dr. Behnoud Bikdeli. He is MDMS, Master of Science, clinician investigator. He's uh, fully trained in cardiology and advanced training in vascular medicine. And is very interested in both venous and arterial thrombosis and antithrombotic therapy. So as you can imagine, our paths have crossed in the past. I've been lucky enough to be co-authoring some of his multiple papers. He received his MD from SBMU in Tehran University and subsequently completed a postdoctoral research fellowship at Yale New Haven Hospital, Center of Outcomes Research, the core outcome research and evaluation core under Dr. Harlan Krumholtz, who everyone knows we've had him before on as a guest. He stayed at Yale to complete his internal medicine residency training, continued his cardiovascular disease fellowship at New York Presbyterian Columbia, and he's also completed an NIH T32 research fellowship and received his Master of Science in Patient-Oriented Research. Dr. Bigdeli completed an advanced vascular medicine fellowship at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Harvard, and his research has been funded by NIH, AHA, and the Brigham and Women's Hospital Center. His work has been published in top journals, Lancet, JAMA, Circulation, Jack, BMJ, and others. And he's a lead author of the two international consensus documents related to thrombosis in COVID-19 and is involved in several clinical trials for thrombotic diseases. Welcome, Dr. Bigdeli. Um, my God, um, I'm gonna call you also Behnoud. And uh, it's wonderful to have you both here. Um, first of all, congratulations. This is, uh, the two of you are sort of the rock stars of the future, already rock stars of the current 
but I think you guys are going to be leading the way uh, for cardiovascular research and outcomes. Um, and we just returned from the American Heart Association 2022 scientific sessions. And I wanted to hear from the two of you who I know paid a lot of attention to the multitudes of the trials that were being presented of what was hot and what was not. And maybe we'll start with you, uh, Bobak. What was your, I know the, the, there was a lot of heart failure trials, some really like simple questions about two different diuretics, which one is better, et cetera. Let's, let's hear your thoughts about some of the, some of the hot news and maybe some, some things that you might've expected, et cetera. Bobak? Yeah, so uh, you know, I think it's all good as long as it's a, a good research question and a well-designed study. Anything is informative, even if it's null. So, you know, I'm I'm a big proponent of study design, and you know, as long as you're getting the sample size and event rates that you're expecting, that's a that's good news. And so, AHA was exciting. Um, I think something I tweeted out was that you know it was it was a bad day for pharmacokinetics. You know, people had these expectations, uh, all this teaching and belief in bioavailability and half-lives. So, you know, the first null trial to really be announced was the TRANSFORM heart failure trial. Uh, I know our local VA, we were one of the sites for that. And it's very pragmatic, practical kind of question. There's been some smaller studies suggesting that terosamide has a lower rehospitalization risk. It has better bioavailability. It's a more reliable diuretic. And so, you know, these investigators had received funding to do a very large pragmatic study to see at discharge, if you send someone home with furosemide or the equivalent dose of terosemide, can you prevent readmissions? Um, and so that study was very null. And, and so uh, some of these things that people tried to emphasize based on pharmacodynamics and, and beliefs about, you know, differences in drug classes really doesn't pan out into anything meaningful on a, on a patient level scale or a large scale when you introduce that randomization element to really see if there's a difference. The other trials that caught my attention would be uh, the COACH trial I thought was pretty cool. So that was um, something very unique to the Canadian healthcare system. It's a mix of implementation and randomization to figure out if an, a different strategy of delivering care could be better. And so within the Canadian healthcare system in Ontario, they, they randomize sites uh, in a step wedge design. Um, so as you implement uh, a system of, of, of triage for heart failure into each of these healthcare systems, you, you can then uh, measure the difference in of the intervention compared to usual care as it happens over time. So there can be a time component bias related to the rollout, but uh, it's sort of accounted for in some of the error estimates statistically of that kind of design. But the COACH trial showed that, you know, the way the EDs were tri typically triaging patients, you know, based on expertise and, you know, variation based on various clinicians compared to a very structured system of using a risk equation, where if you were a low-risk heart failure patient, you were discharged to home. And if you were high-risk, you were automatically admitted and evaluated. And they showed a reduction in hospitalization and even like a small signal for uh, cause-specific mortality, I believe. That to me was pretty interesting, right? I mean, I think using these sort of risk, uh, risk identifiers to kind of think about where you could, uh, whether you should be 
um, going forward or not. I mean, the, the it wasn't a massive study, but I think it was a really interesting one. What did you yeah. think about that, Behnoud? Did you remember? Did you did you did you watch that one? Yeah, and and, and first, thank you so much, Dr. Mehran, for having me in. Uh, it's been a great pleasure and honor to learn from you and then to work from you. And I'm incredibly thankful for the opportunity to be on your show. I I completely agree with what Babak was saying. To me, also. There is really no completely positive or negative trial. Even those that fail to meet the primary outcome, as long as they're robustly designed, they're highly informative. And about this trial in Canada, I also think the design was interesting and the findings may be relevant, but the question about differences in health systems is one that we should keep in mind. No, for sure. Um, now, Kidney was also presented uh, this was really on chronic kidney disease. And uh, what did you guys, did you guys see that? It was a large numbers of patients. It was, um, you know, like 6,600 patients or so. Uh, and uh, I mean, I don't know that we expected anything different, but it was pretty incredible. The, the outcomes in terms of progression of kidney disease and death from cardiovascular causes. There were no surprises. I think we, we had seen that kind of a evaluation. And it was obviously, it was a simultaneous publication in, in the New England Journal of Medicine. I thought that was something great for kind of thinking about those patients with CKD. And we know a lot of these heart failure patients have concomitant CKD. And most, a lot of these patients in ampa kidney did have heart failure. Isn't that right, Bobak? Yeah, I'm trying to, I don't remember the exact percentage, but the inclusion was basically based on GFR. Yeah. And SGLT2s are now just a remarkable class of medications uh, for high-risk uh, diabetes patients, for heart failure, for CKD, and consistently showing very large effect sizes with reducing hospitalization risks by 30 to 40% hazards, uh, uh, all-cause mortality, cause-specific mortality. You know, these are the, the new statins, basically. They're, they're so effective. They're so well-tolerated. Um, and we really need to figure out how to implement them more rapidly and, 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 and figure out the cost barriers and other barriers for patients to get access. I'm fortunate, I, I, I do most of my clinical work at the VA, and so um, uh, the medications are $50 a month. It's one-tenth of what you know, the general market might be pricing these drugs at, but they're just remarkably effective. And I think the question now is, what new populations might this be useful for? I've, I've been curious about uh, the recovery trials, COVID-19, SGLT2 arm, um, hear about that. Um, Maybe Ben Newt knows something about that. Uh, I, I, wish, I don't think it's out there, but I'm here with you in spirit because it sounds like nowadays, pick a disease, try SGLT2 inhibitors, and there is a high chance that you get positive results. The only caveat, as you appropriately mentioned, is the cost. Some of the cost-effectiveness analyses are less enthusiastic compared with hard outcomes analyses. So hopefully we will get there with the cost. And these are really remarkable drugs. Yeah, I'm really yeah. interested in like imagining its role in acute kidney injury. You guys know I'm really interested in that. And is this so much, um, you know, it would be interesting because um, Pretty much pick a disease, but acute kidney injury seems like a low-hanging yeah. fruit. Uh, and uh, I think I would, some of them are evaluating that now. I'd like to see how far down you can go the, down the risk spectrum towards primary prevention. 
you know. Yeah, and I agree. I agree. Now, what did you think of the intravenous ferric uh, uh, aerosomal? Samaltose or whatever it is, like iron injection, Iron Man heart failure, the Iron Man study. Yeah, what did you think of that? That was also I mean, a, a large scale study, and uh, we know heart failure patients with anemia is a big risk factor. It's important to screen for and replete. There's been other studies showing suggesting benefit. I think this overall was pretty modest. It wasn't, you know, it, there was some signal there, but. Um, the p-value wasn't there probably because they really didn't have large numbers of patients, right? It was like 1,100 patients. Yeah. There looked to be, it crossed the line of unity, but it looked to be like about an 18% reduction in heart failure, hospitalizations, and cardiovascular death out to four years. The curve sort of separated early on. So, um, you know, I guess if they had larger numbers of patients and you know, by the time you get out to four years, the numbers at risk decrease so much that it's hard to read out what this really means down yeah. the line. I, I wasn't, I didn't feel like it was a very, very robust study, although it was pub simultaneously published in the Lancet Journal. Yeah, so let's now go to to you, Behnud, and some of the some of the antithrombi. It was sort of this, it was a pick, slim pickings on antithrombotics, but um there was some STEMI studies. Um, there was this um, a Chinese herbal medicine in acute myocardial infarction uh, versus placebo in STEMI patients. Usually we imagine that some antithrombotics usually work well here. This is sort of a, it's a TXN or something like that in, and versus placebo in STEMI patients. Um, it really looked to be like sort of the magic pill. You wanna comment on that? What did you think? Of course, thank you so much. And yes, it was an extremely interesting study from multiple perspectives, not to mention that it included extracts from scorpion and leeches, Hirudo, which gets to Hirudo, I assume, to some extent, um, and a combination of other things, including ginseng. Really, it had dramatic uh, treatment effects for myocardial infarction, mortality, and others. But sometimes history has shown us when something is too good to be true, it turns out uh, either the effect is really a little less than that or different. So I think we might need some form of confirmatory studies before we think this very curious combination is ready for prime time use, but extremely fascinating. Oh, Bobak, what did you think of that study? I mean, it's a large trial. They have a, a clear protocol. They have a huge effect size. So it's hard to explain to chance. So then the concern becomes, is this uh, uh, fraud? Is there is there data manipulation that's related to this study? And But I, I was digging through like old papers. It's something that seems to be commonly used uh, in Chinese medicine. And um, if, if, it, if there is some effect, you know, with um, reperfusion injury and... Um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, you never know. There could be you some never... possibility that we just don't have any answers to. Yeah, so it, it would be good to identify what is the mechanism or, because there's so many different natural agents put into this compound that is there some uh, bioactive uh, medication that's that's precipitating most of the benefit. But yeah, anyway, the, the other the other study on in China that I was very interested in is this sort of uh Chinese uh, rural hypertension study where they use the villages, they randomize villages. So it's like, I, I really enjoyed that to the intervention 
led by a doctor to manage the hypertension versus usual care. And boy, that was that one a really, really effective uh, with um, major reductions in heart endpoints like uh, stroke and heart failure and all-cause mortality. And I mean, major reductions of 31%, which we never hardly ever see, but that kind of, um, you know, um, where you use these um, cluster randomizations, I find them to be very, very interesting. You both have had some experience with cluster randomized studies and, um, and, and the idea of like doing large scale studies where you don't really have to flip the coin, but you basically are doing the same thing over and over again yeah. in a certain group of, of patients. And then you, um, the other group just does their usual care. And it just seems that this particular intervention worked like magic um, in, in, these, um, in these rural um, areas. And, and you imagine that something like this could work in certain zip codes, um, especially those affected by the social determinants of health, where we see, um, you know, assigning physicians and clinicians to lead some of these, you know, really simple interventions like take, diagnosing and treating hypertension, for example, in a, in a rural community could be very, very effective. Um, I'm, I'm amazed to see that kind of reductions, but I think it's still very interesting. What did you guys think? Absolutely. I, I think for these uh, complex interventions, the cluster design is so smart and probably the best way to conduct the studies. And speaking of where the study was conducted, I can't help uh, but also mentioning the other study in China, which was interesting during um, AHA, which was Bride for it. It's a topic that's near and dear to my heart and yours, Dr. Mehran, with Baival Rudin uh, trying to answer another question, this time around in STEMI patients giving a high-dose post-BCI infusion versus heparin-based regimens. And it seemed like we did have a winner this time. The results were, by the way, independently similar to the individual patient analysis that we did of other trials. So I'd be very interested and curious to see if this changes practice moving forward. I think, uh, you know, thank you for bringing up Bright 4 that was published simultaneously in The Lancet presented by Dr. Stone over at AHA. And it really was sort of like trying to tell the full story of Bivalarudin. And if you all remember uh, with, uh, with the Horizons AMI study, the Bivalarudin that wasn't followed with a high dose infusion of um, uh, Bivalarudin you know, after the procedure was associated with early stent thrombosis. We saw that, we reported that. I was part of that study in Horizons AMI we did see a very important association with whether or not those patients received heparin on their way to the cath lab or a bivalirudin uh, infusion afterwards where there was, uh, but obviously that was observational. And this is sort of a, a Chinese study that uh, randomized over 6,000 patients to heparin monotherapy versus bival with a high dose infusion. And they did show a reduction in, in in the NACE events, uh, which was death, um, all-cause mortality, and also um, uh, BARC uh, type three, five bleeding, which was their primary endpoint, both were in the right direction together. And it was a very, very, um, you know, with the numbers needed to treat as low as 76. So it looked really, really good. Whether, uh, I, I'm so not sure 
that this will completely change the current uh, paradigm because I think um, the high the bivalve with the high dose infusion afterwards sort of finishing the bag is quite expensive actually compared to heparin and we've already gone back uh, to that and whenever you see a study like this you would like to see a repetitive one before you would change the guidelines but it's an important one to kind of think about if if you are using bivalve it's really important in STEMI patients to keep that high infusion going post-procedure so that the patients receive the proper and the uh, uh, important amount of anticoagulation that's needed. Um, and then I think, um, you know, I kind of uh, wanted to talk a little bit about ischemia extend. Uh, obviously, everybody knows about ischemia. This is a study that has been like highly changing a lot of the guidelines, tremendous study, over 5,000 patients randomized to invasive versus conservative strategy for uh, stable coronary disease. Everyone knows the results of death and MI not being any different in chronic coronary syndromes. As long as they don't have left main disease, you could sort of treat them either conservatively and in the invasive management was associated with uh, in improving and enhancing quality of life and um, you know, less revascularizations or un unneed revascularizations, et cetera. Uh, but there was no effect on mortality back then in, in, in two to three years follow-up. And now we have five and a half, close to six years follow-up with no difference whatsoever and like an all-cause mortality. So that was really, really important to make sure that we have uh, an important assessment there. In fact, in the invasive therapy, there seemed to be some less cardiovascular death, but then it was um, the non-cardiovascular death was higher. So therefore they ended up with an equal sort of mortality, no mortality benefit at all. I think that's an important one to think about. Uh, Bobak, you're not an interventionalist, uh, <laughs> last I checked. Uh, well, yeah. What are you doing with your patients? And is, is ischemia changed the way you treat these patients? I think we've become more comfortable with the idea of you know, severe disease, that angiographic severe disease, not rushing to needing to be aggressive about it. Um, and, um, and so, as, you know, with, with the heart failure patients, especially where um, revascularization doesn't seem to uh, improve any function or, or hard outcomes. And so the, for stable CAD, I think we're, we're still trying to understand you know, unless you're refractory to medical therapy in terms of symptoms, um, what are the benefits we're offering patients? So, uh, you know, I'm still a, an Orbita fan in terms of maximizing medical therapy. And then, you know, if a patient um, feels like their symptoms aren't improving or they're uh, having side effects from the medications, then sort of referring. But we still do our shared cath conferences for every patient who's going to be referred for stenting or or cabbage and have a, a team-based discussion around uh, appropriate care. Um, let's just finish up with some of these just quickly, like go fast through these other ones. Uh, there was uh, Prevent HD with Rivaroxaban versus placebo. I think everybody wanted to understand what was going on there with uh, these patients and how would, would Rivaroxaban or some form of a factor 10A inhibitor help these patients where we knew in acutely ill symptomatic COVID-19 patients, there was a lot of thromboembolic events. Uh, Behnud, I'm coming to you. Uh, 
didn't look very promising, did it? No, it didn't. I, I think it was a little disappointing. The trial was stopped prematurely, but the composite that they were looking for wasn't positive, particularly it didn't have an effect on hospitalizations. There was a signal that they had post hoc for reduction in thrombotic events, but the absolute event rates were low. So I think the take home message is for the vast majority of outpatients, there's no need for prophylaxis moving forward. Yeah, and that's kind of a big uh, a big thing. I know there are some other studies that are going on. And then just on the quickly, I, I really like the improved trial that was sort of electronic health record, venous thromboembolism uh, risk assessment, uh, where you were looking at these medically ill patients, and they were randomized also to a intervention group versus a control group. The intervention group looked at this electronic health record, which I think is going to be sort of futuristic. And I think you guys both are involved to this kinds of evaluation of how we can improve things using some of the electronic health records, this risk model to help decision-making. And it seems like it worked well. Um, uh, do you guys want to tell me a little bit about that? And, and was there, uh, it, it seemed like there were better rates of in-hospital appropriate thromboprophylaxis as well as less um, thromboembolic events without increasing bleeding. Uh, maybe I'll start with you, Behnud, and then maybe Bobak, you can tell me how, uh, based on all of the work you're doing on pragmatic trials and stuff, and if this is going to be a way where we use we use electronic health records to risk stratify our patients. Behnud? Of course. Thank you. I, I think it had an elegant design, again, going to cluster randomization and the use of electronic uh, decision support tool for the physicians to decide. They improved the process measure, which was tied into improvement in relevant clinical outcomes, venous and arterial thrombosis. The only question in my mind, and I would love to see the full text paper to digest that better, is why the mortality went on the wrong direction. So yeah. that, that, that is something uh, that I would be curious to learn more, but kudos to them for the interesting trial that they accomplished. I mean, I don't know that they were powered for that mortality um, endpoint. Uh, and of course, you know, the devil is always in the details because um, the intervention group might have had a more precise way of finding the most appropriate use, but then it's also usually that's in the sicker patient population. So it, it would be interesting to better understand what that's all about, obviously. Um, the last thing I want to talk about, I'm really excited about this, these inhaled, um, inhaled therapies that could give us uh, some, uh, some headway in treating patients even before they get into the hospital. I think it's interesting to see that you could have inhaled therapies that could help uh, in self-administering, let's say, a drug that could terminate spontaneous PSVT, which was uh, the rapid trial that was shown. Um, I'm kind of excited about this type of um, evaluation of having the patients in the driver's seat and having them administer uh, the kinds of things like terminating their uh, spontaneous supraventricular tachycardia by inhaling uh, a drug uh, like uh, what they did here in this in this rapid study or uh, we're working on a on an inhaled aspirin for STEMI patients who may or may not be ready to get like let's say a line or uh, ability to get 
their, um, you know, get the antithrombotics in them fast enough. What did you guys think about that? Um, Bobak, I'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds great. You know, we're telling people to vagal and carotid massage to get themselves out. And, and now we have this quick nasal spray with great bioavailability. So, I mean, it's kind of neat to see that there's new drugs being developed that can have an application that may be useful for, for patients. So um, I forget, I think I just saw some slides. I didn't, I don't know if there's a publication has come out yet in detail. Yeah, no, the publication isn't out. So the devil is always in the details and we'll be able to, to look at that more, more, more uh, precisely. Well, you know, I'm just so excited that both of you are here. Um, you're both, um, you know, the, the, the next generation of leaders, uh, people should know who you are. But most importantly, that uh, the three of us share something, and that's our heritage. We're all uh, from Iran, some roots in Iran. Um, our country is going through a tough time right now. Uh, uh, and of course, I'm very proud. Personally, I'm proud of, the, of, of what's going on in my country, in my uh, country of origin. The, the, obviously, it's very, very important to me. I'm proud of the women. I also am very proud of the fact that uh, uh, women are leading the way. I think they should be leading the way in cardiology as well. And, and I'm hoping that the two of you uh, could, uh, could definitely, as you're climbing, you're also lifting up some women with you uh, because it won't happen without your work uh, and without all of us working together. As you know, I'm a founder of Women as One. I'm very dedicated to making sure that women also get the opportunities that the two of you got, for example, or that I got. Uh, mine was really from Marty Leon and, and Cardiovascular Research Foundation that really gave me my very first opportunity. And, and I ran with it. And I think the two of you have run, run with all of the opportunities in front of you. I think it's great. Uh, uh, I know you guys work very, very hard, but I also know that you both must have very strong mothers uh, and uh, Iranian mothers who are strong and were very, very much um, involved in making sure you had the strength and the fortitude to get to where you are. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about our culture and for the world to, to listen to what it means to be an Iranian here in America. So, um, I mean, I know, uh, Bobak, I know you're uh, uh, born in the United States, but you know, you're really Persian. Let's understand <laughs> You're a lucky guy to come from Iranian roots. Yeah. And, I'm uh, very, I'm very, I'm very Iranian. I, I have a, a lot of pride in our, our culture and um, uh, a strong family to back that up. So I, I was born in New York, but my, my parents came here as immigrants. They, my dad was actually part of like a a program where the Shah helped uh, people get educated abroad. So he was a college student and um, he worked as a taxi driver. So I think, I think it was only a few years ago. I learned that, you know, while the, while he's trying to go to school, driving a taxi that like, you know, I was, I was on Medicaid. I was one of these low income children that needed assistance. And, you know, my mom worked in an ice cream shop. Uh, uh, somehow they managed a schedule where they could both work, go to school and take care of me. Growing up, I remember, you know, they, they didn't come here. They came pre pre revolution, like a year, like a year or two before. And then they, they were expecting to go back to develop their professional careers um, and then ended up staying. 
but I remember going as a, you know, like a two, three-year-old, they would take me to protests in New York and uh, against the um, uh, Ayatollah back then. And then always having a very distant relationship with my grandparents and uncles who, you know, couldn't come here to visit. And, and so it was all phone calls and, and letters. Uh, yeah, you know, Bobak, it sounds like you and I have a lot in common because my parents came here a few years at, before the revolution as well. And I grew up, um, you know, with nothing, uh, really, literally. I, I mean, I, I've spoken about my roots. I'm, I am the immigrant from Iran. I was a young kid coming from Iran, didn't speak any English. And, and my amazing parents were highly educated with a wonderful uh, future and a, and a full everything in Iran, left everything behind and came here and, and they just worked hard. Um, you know, just remember my mom selling bo- uh, uh, trays of baklava for $12 a tray so we could have some uh, some money and some food to eat. And that was just, you know, back in 1976, 77, 78, whatever it was, 78, 79, when all these things happened when things went really, really bad um, in Iran and we lost everything we owned and had. But honestly, um, it just talks about, but my mother was the central core of us focusing on on our education and and, um, really being proud of our heritage and not to think about uh, what was going on in Iran at the time and imagining um, our roots that come from thousands of years ago with beautiful, incredible culture, and of course, a very important um, um, uh, depth and breadth of literature, poetry, and just beautiful things that come from Iran. And I think that uh, we're seeing it now. We're seeing the incredible, um, very, very um, talented men and women who are speaking out and, and are brave and uh, want uh, so much uh, to do and improve and enhance and be able to make a better world uh, for everyone and to have the freedom that they deserve. Behnud, I know you also come from a very strong family with with uh, beautiful strength and, and fortitude as well, probably from your parents and continues to be now here. And I know that you're extremely proud of your heritage as well. And it's great that you're here with us too. And this has been a fantastic, fantastic time with the two of you. I want the world to know about both of you. Behnud, I know that you came after a full education in Iran and had a wonderful, uh, brilliant background and then were able to really, really flourish here. And uh, I know that you continue to to be uh, very, very much close to to everything that goes on uh, with your families and everybody in Iran. So it's great that you're all here. I look forward to a bright future for the both of you and watching how you're going to build communities of successful men and women who are going to climb the ladder and and be the next. And I'll I'll see both of you at some, I mean, I'm sure. Just make sure you don't forget me. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so very much, Dr. Mehran. It's such a privilege and honor to be with you. Thank you. It's an honor to be on your show and and, and talk at great, great length. Thank you. And thank you for for dissecting the AHA 2022. That was a fantastic annual sessions. And let's keep the science strong and and our culture strong as well and our community stronger, even better uh, together. And it's Roxana Moran signing off of Rock's Heart Radio. Thank you for joining. Thank you for listening. Listen up. Next month will be even greater.